And one aspect of caching that might not be well understood by everyone is that caching happens sort of for every layer of the DNS, right? So you cache responses from the root zone, from the TLDs, and all the way down. So caching happens at all those layers. You're listening to Ping, a podcast by APNIC, discussing all things related to measuring the internet. I'm your host, George Michelson. This time, I'm talking to Dwayne Wessels from Verisign about the DNS. Dwayne and I discussed an IETF drop he has been working on with two other co-authors from Verisign. It's looking to document the practices caching DNS failures. When the resolver has to be told, there's no answer. Normally, the DNS is caching positive answers or negative denial of existence. This other kind of caching is about those awkward times when something in the DNS system overall interferes with saying categorically if a name exists or not. Dwayne, welcome back to Ping. It's lovely to have you here again. Thank you very much, George. It is great to be back. Now, what shall we talk about this time? Well, I thought we might talk about something I've been working on recently with some of my VeriSign colleagues, which is an internet draft titled Caching of DNS Resolution Failures. So, caching is one of the most brilliant things in computer science. It's been around forever. The idea that when you fetch something from slow forms of storage, maybe mag tape or a card deck or even a hard drive, it would be incredibly useful not to have to go back and seek and riffle through the cards every time, right? Absolutely. And the DNS takes pretty good advantage of caching. It's almost mandatory to. So this model of name lookup that we live in, in modern DNS, there are authoritative servers, the ones who actually know and publish ground state truths about the state of domain names. And there's the things we call resolvers. Now, they're often actually running exactly the same code. Most of the code base most people run is capable of being either an authoritative server or a resolver, a recursive resolver, as it's called, or in fact, doing both jobs at once. Caching is about the recursive resolver mostly, isn't it? Yes, exactly. Yep. And what's happening is, as people ask questions, we're building up a model inside all the resolvers distributed around the global internet of the questions they've already asked. So instead of having to ask the question again, as long as you're inside the lifetime that's been specified when you got the last answer, you just look it up in the tree structure you've got locally. Yep. And one aspect of caching that might not be well understood by everyone is that caching happens sort of for every layer of the DNS, right? So you cache responses from the root zone, from the TLDs, and all the way down. So caching happens at all those layers. Thinking about caching, most situations people encounter caching, it's remembering something you know you have. It's caching a record from disk so that it's in memory for fast local storage. But in the DNS, there are at least two kinds of caching. There's caching the answers that are the good answers you want to know, and there's caching that you've formally been told this thing you asked about simply does not exist. 
But you're actually going to be talking today about a third form of caching, aren't you? That's right. Yeah. So as you said, there's two kinds of answers you can get in the the DNS. You can get the answer that you asked for. You can get an answer that said, hey, the thing you asked for doesn't exist. But the third type that we want to talk about today is what do you do when you asked and nobody could give you any answer at all? Maybe you get just timeouts or maybe you get some other errors that don't give you a useful answer. So it's kind of the yes, no, and the maybe situation. And we're here to talk about maybe. (laughs) Maybe that's it. Right, right. (laughs) So you started this work actually comparatively recently in RFC, IETF process time, didn't you? This isn't something that's been going on for a very long time. Yeah, that's right. Probably, I'd say less than two years ago, we started this internet draft. Yeah. And the idea here is that there's enough systematic failure to even say authoritatively if the answer is yes or no, that we've reached a point that we need to be able to remember that to prevent some things from arising. Could you actually talk a little bit about the situations that can arise that mean the answer has to be, I don't know? Yeah. So let me start off with uh, sort of one of the first instances where where this became uh, something to be concerned about, which is something you were actually involved in, in 2009, you co-authored some work called Roll Over and Die. Oh, right. Right? So what happened in this case was, this this was in, again, 2009, before the uh, root zone was signed with DNSSEC, but some other zones were signed with DNSSEC, notably some in ARPA zones. We were still quite interested in the technology stages of proving we were ready to do this, and people had leapt ahead of root signing and were deploying DNSSEC further down the tree. But there had to be this weird set-aside mechanism to say, which key should you be using to find a trust anchor path? Right, so there was this idea of this trust anchor repository where you could put in these keys, these starting points for zones that were uh, already signed. And so that had happened for some in ARPA zones, some reverse DNS zones. And they did a key rollover, but they didn't update the trust anchor data. And some recursive resolvers sort of uh, went a little bit crazy when this happened. They got very aggressive retrying their queries. It was a really quite marked surge in the volume of traffic that built up to frankly, unsustainable levels. It kind of came out of the blue. And so when you have a situation like this, of course, the first thing that comes to mind is we're under attack. We're under attack. It must be the A. Exactly. (laughs) This time, it wasn't actually an external bad faith operator attacking us. It was the system itself resonating like a bell with repeated echoing queries backwards and forwards. That's exactly it. And that's one of the points that we make in our research and in our draft that these events are almost indistinguishable from attack events. There is so much traffic that you just, you have to handle it in the same way almost. So that one was about a failure in signing changeover and rekeying and the requirement to try and access the keying information behind a signed object you see. But that's not the only kind of failure you can encompass in the system, right? It's possible for people to create states which are just so incoherent, it's not possible to answer. Yes. So some other examples are, there was some work done a few years ago on cyclical delegations where a domain could have name servers in, in some other domain, 
And if that domain then has its name servers back in the first, you have this loop that, that sort of can't be resolved, right? Yeah. And, and if you create this, then again, the recursive name servers, some of them at least, don't handle it very well. And they get very aggressive. They just retry repeatedly, repeatedly, and you get this flood of traffic. So you actually have to kind of be able to detect sometimes that you've got a situation that can't be answered. But there's the problem that mechanistically you walk into the trap not actually knowing necessarily it exists. Right. And then a more recent example, which is really very straightforward to understand, is when when all the name servers for a domain are not responding. You don't get answers from anywhere. They just time out. And this happened notably with Facebook a couple of years ago, right? They, all their data centers sort of went offline at the same time. And for VeriSign running the .com name servers, we saw our traffic increase from normally about 7,000 queries per second for Facebook to almost a million queries per second just for Facebook when all of the users are trying to get there. So this is quite an interesting observation because there's two parts to this. One part is that the thing that actually went wrong here was a breakdown in routing technology, really specifically about the name server component of Facebook's infrastructure. All the rest of their machinery had an internal sense of place and time and how to work. But because of this routing failure, their name service failed. And because their name service failed, at the point that any cached information about name to address lookup timed out, everybody had to try and find it again. And the place they hammer is the parent. Right. So there's this quality. The people who get affected from failures in DNS states aren't necessarily the end user client and the delegate themselves, there are these third parties. There's the people above them that potentially are affected. Yes, exactly. Yeah. The thing that's challenging, I think, in all this is that, like in the case of Facebook, you want to have some agility, and so you have sort of low TTLs, right? That's usually a good thing. But as you said, those, those cache entries time out pretty quickly then, and the, uh, the traffic levels can ramp up. The other challenge is that the folks that implement the recursive name servers, they want their software to be adaptive and responsive to, and recover from these kind of failures. So they're kind of motivated to be a little bit aggressive in the way they retry. Yeah. But again, the problem is when it's uh, millions of users and clients all hammering the parent zone, it comes across as an attack. So we've, in APNIC, we've recently been looking at the properties of DNS queries passing through some of the open public resolvers. And we think that there may be a divergence, a two-state model, if you like, emerging here, where the root is the last chance hotel, and root operators see every possible name query that nobody else can answer at least once. You guys are just hammered by things that will never result in a valid answer, and you're probably giving a lot of answers that are in the category of, I'm telling you for real, this simply doesn't exist. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Root zone, about half of the queries that are sent to the root zone are for names that don't exist. And so it's kind of crazy. But the thing here is that your functional role isn't generally to answer questions about Joe's Diner down underneath.com. It's to say, this is where you go to find what .com has. Somebody else is going to tell you the address for Joe's Diner. So if Joe's Diner way down on the edge underneath a second level domain or under a GTLD, has a problem, it's not actually the root server that's likely to be the one able to say, 
I don't know, because you were never heading to answer that question in the first place, were you? No, we weren't. But what we see from some recursive name server implementations is that when Joe's diner, say, becomes unresolvable, the logic in the recursive name service is, well, maybe something changed at the parent zone. Maybe I should re-ask the .com name servers if Joe's got a new something or other. And so they'll do that. They'll retry there. And then even that leaks up another level into the root zone. They'll say, well, maybe something's weird with the, the, the .com name servers. Maybe I should find out if they're still where I think they used to be. So even though this is not something you would think is a problem at the root, this actually propagates all the way through the ecosystem as a whole. Yes. Everybody who's a player in answering questions has some degree of exposure to this problem. Yes, they do. Now, for the case of giving a valid answer, caching, you're told by the domain in question, this is the cache lifetime. I'd like you to hang on to that data for. That's a parameter that gets passed in the DNS answer. And for the case of being told, no, this absolutely does not exist, there is a value that is embedded in the zone that is used as a basis to say, here's the minimum length of time. I think you should remember, I've told you this absolutely does not exist. So we have two timers wired down. But for this new, maybe, yeah, maybe, no, I don't know right now, go away, I'm busy. Do we actually have a defined timer? There is none. No, there is, you know, in a lot of cases, there's no response at all, like in a timeout. So there's, there's nothing that you can sort of latch onto as a timer. It's all sort of implementation dependent. And it's quite contextually bound to the resolver, the recursive resolver that's asking the question, because you've just gone to this other point. This may simply be that you never get back a response packet in UDP, in TCP, in DNS over HTTPS, nobody answers. Yes. So in the draft, we have some sort of guidelines, but it's not really prescriptive. It's we set minimum and maximum values, or we, we recommend minimum and maximum values for caching these types of resolution failures. But really, the implementations have a lot of leeway into how aggressive they want to be, how often they want to retry, and, and so on. It feels a little like this might actually be, rather than an algorithmic statement, this might be a heuristic based on experience. How did you guys come up with a feel for what the timers should be? Well, some of it is taken from earlier RFCs. There are some RFCs that already talk about the cases where you do get a uh, where you get an NX domain response and you have values there. And those early RFCs did talk; they just sort of touch on this issue a little bit. Our Internet Draft takes it further and gives more specific, more concrete guidance. And then the other part was, you know, just interactions with the DNSOP working group, the mailing list, and putting numbers out there and seeing what people say. You know, we, we started with a, one version of our draft said something like DNS resolution failures must be cached for at least five seconds. Wow. Some people said that's, 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 that's ages. That's, yeah, that's too long in internet time. You know, yeah. let's, it should be lower. And so it got revised to uh, one second. So quite a common feature of behavior in any aspect of an article, either in a cache or not in a cache, is the idea of back off. What do you do if you do find yourself asking again and you get the same problem you had before? It's probably time to back off and wait a bit longer, right? So I'm going to guess that you head towards some model of exponential back off in this situation. Yeah, the recent version of the draft, which is um, it's hopefully nearing its completion, it does have that in there. It, it has says something like implementations should 
implement a, a backoff, either linear or exponential. And we think that's very important because even if you're caching a resolution failure for one second, you need to be a little bit smart and not ask every second for the next <laughs> no. 10 minutes and expect a different answer, right? You should, as you said, slow down, back off over time and be sensible about it. It's got guidance for how to consider the situation. It's got to sign off on a number of different qualities here, because unlike the first two classic cases, this one is principally about bugs in the system, mistakes, where this you might have no answer or incoherent answers, and it's got some guidance on timing, but it's not highly prescriptive normative language you must do. It's more in the recommendation space. That's the way I think I'm hearing it. That's right. In RFC parlance, I would say that it's we're using mostly should-level requirements. There's maybe just one or two must requirements in there, but since it's mostly shoulds or may requirements, that gives a lot of leeway to implementers to uh, do it how, they, how it makes most sense for them. In DNS parlance, there are codes, resource records that are used to encode information, and there's also status fields that denote whether something is giving you a positive or negative outcome. What is a resolver meant to do with one of these situations? How does it inform the client what's going on here? Because there is, of course, that last mile. Software in browsers, software in applications has to be told, I don't know, and they have to work out what to do. Our draft doesn't change any of that. That's all sort of well-established already, I guess. But to answer your question, the resolver will return to the client, uh, generally a, a server failure response, indicating that it was not able to resolve the question. So surfail is something I see a lot of because of doing this public DNS analysis. And the rates of surfail seen on the edge are really quite high, measured in aggregate across all the traffic seen passing through a resolver. But our individual experience using applications is this is not an expected outcome. This isn't the thing that you typically expect to see, right? Right. Yeah, it's similar for some of the research that I'm involved in. We see, even for domains and zones that are known to be highly available, working all the time, if you query a large enough sample of resolvers, you're always going to see you know, a few percent of them experience this server failure just for timeouts or, or any other problems that might be happening to them. So things like timeouts may simply be, I can't answer you right now as a statement of load. It's not actually a statement about the validity of the label or problems like circularity in NS references. It's the next stage along the chain saying to you, get out of my hair, I can't do this right now. Or even just your classic link being down, uh, you, you know, good old-fashioned uh, IP timeout. Right. So these states of being are actually not necessarily globally applicable statements that cover the entire surface of all resolvers. It's a story about you, the client, the resolver that's upstream of you, and its point position about whether it can or can't answer. I mean, we talked a little bit that it could be for reasons that are innately in the name, but it also actually might not be. Yeah, yeah, it could just be the network, or your Wi-Fi connection, or whatever. Lots of reasons. Do you think it's possible that the extended DNS response codes and error codes might become something we use to expand on what's going on here? I, I do think so. Yeah, I've seen already some some folks are talking about this quite a bit, and, and there are some implementations of it, and it looks very interesting. This is from the edge user experience. When you configure a machine on a network, you typically get told one or two different resolvers. 
as it happens where I am, I'm getting told two different addresses, one in V4 and one in V6. They go in my local configuration as my upstream resolvers. And the thing is, even though I know magically they're the same machine, they present as two different addresses. So there actually isn't very much you guys can do about this. If I, as a client, get back an answer serve fail, I am going to ask the same question again using the other IP address in my resolver configuration. Yeah, and it's and that's kind of the right thing to do. As, as you said, the code doesn't know necessarily that they're the same service or same server. It has to assume that by asking the other one, it might it might get a good answer. So this isn't something that absolutely closes off people re-asking the question. It's more that it sets limits on the amount of reapplication. Exactly. And we even say that very specifically in, in the draft. Nothing in the draft prevents someone from retrying a query, but we do want to set some boundaries on how often to retry and what to expect from <laughs> aggressive retrying. Yeah. And another part of this problem that I think I saw referenced in the draft is that if I fail to get an answer with a UDP question, I might also go and re-ask this question over TCP, or I might even go up the food chain and be asking this question over HTTPS or over TLS. The draft has to encounter asking the same question on multiple different protocols. But you do give some guidance there, don't you? The guidance that we give is pretty open, I, I would say. It, it, it says that if you're a recursive server, I'm sorry, if you're a, a client and you have reason to believe that asking on a different DNS transport, TCP, HTTPS, might work, you should go ahead and, and retry your query over those transports. As you just said, the software can't really assume that it's the same endpoint on the other side and that asking would also lead to the same non-response. So yeah, the recursive resolver or, or whatever client should ask over whatever transports it has at its disposal. So nothing in the DNS changes at light speed. This is going to be at the pace of horses trotting slowly down the road. <laughs> What's your kind of expectation for system change? Do you think we are going to see visible alteration in volumes of traffic as a result of this work? So not in the normal case, of course, but like outages and incidents, we might see some. And if we don't, then we at least have something that we can reference and say, hey, there was this incident, we saw this big traffic spike. By the way, here's this RFC that you, know, you should take a look at and, and maybe adjust your software accordingly. DNS caches, cache ejection, we don't actually have a mechanistic basis to tell people you should probably flush state in your belief about a thing, do we? There's no secure way that you can really do that. There's just email lists today, <laughs> which is always entertaining to read. <laughs> yeah, wow, slow. <laughs> yeah, slow. Um, that does actually mean that there's this other side of caching and exponential back off that you actually don't want something like this to wind up saying, I'm going to hold on to this for 24 hours, because if it's a transient problem, you really do need to come back and try again. Yeah, the draft says no more than five minutes, right? So the minimum is one second. The maximum is five minutes. You should not cache any resolution failure longer than five minutes. And I would be surprised if any implementation even went that far. I would expect a minute at the most. Yeah, but at an individual client level, the volume of DNS that goes on underneath the surface is actually quite surprising. If you turn on any kind of packet capture just sitting on a Mac, 
the um, multicast DNS load is almost continuous because it's sensing what's out there. If you click on a web page, there might be two or 300 assets that you're fetching, and they are all different DNS labels. So every one of us is probably emitting one or two DNS queries a second sometimes when we're using our machines. Now, if you move up the food chain into the resolver, you're seeing tens of thousands of these per second passing through you. And if you move up to the authority behind a space like a TLD, you're seeing millions. So although it might only be five minutes and you think, no, that's not very long at all, that encompasses a window of time where millions and millions of events could be headed off if you do this right. Yes, yeah. And it brings up another interesting point, which we touch on a little bit in the draft, which is this idea of joining queries together, right? So if you're a recursive resolver and you have two users querying for some popular name at the same time, let's say they both want to go to Facebook and you have to do a cache miss and you have to go out the authoritative servers, that takes, I don't know, maybe 100 milliseconds. Ideally, those two incoming queries from from the users would be sort of joined together into one outbound query to the authoritative server, right? And then you would answer both at the same time. But some don't work that way, right? And so if you're in this failure situation where it's taking a long time to time out and you're getting hundreds of requests on the client side, that could lead to hundreds of requests on the server side if the resolver doesn't join them together. Right. That sounds very similar to partially ordered sets inside query chains going into databases. People talk about, is it legal to take a sequence, which is an operation like, say, add, update, delete, and look at it and say, wow, I'm deleting the thing that I just did an add update on. How about if I simply don't put it in at all? (laughs) Right. That kind of operation is quite normal in high-speed transaction processing. And you're saying... In the DNS, some people do and some people don't. Right, yeah. So the the internet draft that we've written says you should do that, but it's not something that can be mandated. Does it imply possibly having a very small amount of hysteresis in the system so that you logically separate inbound queries from upstream outbound queries and can then coalesce them? You probably need some data structure to actually say, wait, these two things are the same. How about I just ask once? Yes, you would need some data structure like that. The the draft doesn't go into that sort of detail, but it does point out that there are security risks to not joining these, right? There's birthday paradox type security risks to not doing that. So it's a good idea. So it's kind of a two-facing problem because you do want to combine for all kinds of logistical reasons. But then there's the point, what if one of them requests DNSSEC and the other doesn't? You actually have to ask the major question, not the minor. Or if one of them says recursion optional and the other one says recursion please, the behavioral differences in the option flags would probably affect what you were doing here. Yeah, when I think about those sorts of complexities, I'm glad I'm not a uh, an author of a, of a recursive DNS software. It's, it's just mind-blowing. Yeah, I think it's easier to be measuring this stuff than it is to be writing it, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely, yes. <laughs> So your draft does also talk about some of the risk side stuff. You've talked, you just said just now, the birthday paradox, but there's also cache poisoning attacks and there are various other risks that people can do actively trying to subvert the DNS system. There are implications in this? Yeah, I mean, the security isn't really a big focus of, that type of security isn't really a big focus of of our draft, but there are those sort of implications, yeah. There's also sort of security challenges in that this resolution failure cache 
might become a security vulnerability in itself, right? It could be DDoSed, right? If, if somebody wants to exhaust <laughs> local memory resources on a resolver, they could try to intentionally bloat the size of this cache or something like that. So, Because there's an infinity of yeah. non-existing things or questions that are incoherent that have to be yeah. remembered having been asked. So the potential to extreme explode yeah. memory so is very high. You know, as usual, there's no such thing as a free lunch. You have to worry about all the ways that new uh, requirements and features can be abused, and, and we try to do that. So, Dwayne, this is a document that you've been working on with two other authors who also work at VeriSign. Is that right? Yeah, my two VeriSign co-authors are William Carroll and Matthew Thomas. And it's already gone through full working group process, and it's now reached that last gating stage where it's undergoing review, one would assume, from the DNS directorate amongst other people. Yeah, we did get some good feedback from the DNS directorate reviewer, Peter, Peter Van Dyke. And uh, just today I was uh, responding to the, I believe it was the Art Art reviewer. And I don't remember off the top of my head what Art Art stands for. Maybe you know. Uh, I'm not going to go and check on Google. I'll leave that as a puzzle for people listening to the podcast. <laughs> but it's, it feels like this this one is actually going to get into RFC Editor Q pretty promptly and really hit the door. Yeah, I, I think there's one more review phase. I think it's ISG review phase, and then, then we'll think about the RFC Editor. And like all things that have quite a long time inside standards, this is something that actually might reflect common activity. As it stands, people are already caching. So it's not like this class of I don't know answer hasn't been cached. It's that we haven't had guidance how it should be done. But there might be code changes coming inside the Resolver code base. Uh, there might be. And you know, one of the things that's been interesting for us in doing this work is seeing the differences between the traditional open source DNS implementations and some of the proprietary big public resolver implementations. So they may have to make some code changes, but we would never see them. Hopefully we'll just see changes in their behavior. But it will be interesting to see whether on the mechanisms like day in the life, DITL, we can actually see qualitative change in the packet capture coming through. I'd really like to see if people are responsive to the idea there should be a change of behavior here, and if any signal pops up. I wonder what that would look like. It's probably about a volume, a relative rate of class of problem. I would think you would almost need an event in order to, to capture the behavior, though. I mean, normal sort of peacetime operations, I'm not expecting a big change in, in the way that Right. But if we had something analogous to Facebook's problem of losing connectivity to their entire NS suite for an extended period, that's the situation. We might see this kind of guidance being ameliorative to the amount of traffic. Yep. Yep. It would. In summary, you can ask the DNS a question and they know, and you should remember. And you can ask the DNS the question and it doesn't know, but it tells you. And you should remember, and we were in this wonderful third space of you ask the DNS a question and it doesn't come quite back the shape you expected and nobody said, should you remember or should you forget? Right. <laughs> and you've now set bounds on the kind of remembering that you should do in that third case. Yep, that's a very good way to put it. Well, Dwayne, I think it's improving the art one step at a time. I think it's wonderful when the DNS advances. I, I'm really pleased this work has gone ahead. Yeah, I, I am as well. I was, to be honest, I was expecting a little bit more, I guess, 
negativity about this whole draft, but it's all been very positive and um, I'm happy that it's gone as quickly as it has. Yeah, we should cache that response and replay it. (laughs) (laughs) Good one. (laughs) It's been good talking to you, Dwight. Likewise, likewise. Thank you very much, George. If you've got a story or research to share here on Ping, why not get in contact by email to ping at apnic.net or via the APNIC social media channels. Also, remember the measurement at APNIC.net mailing list on Orbit is there to discuss and share relevant collaborative opportunities, grants and funding opportunities, jobs and graduate placing, or to seek feedback from the community on your own measurement projects. Be sure to check out the APNIC website for all your resource and community needs. Until next time.